cheers to another episode of the Wine Notes Podcast. I'm your guide, AJ Weinzettel, on this journey of stories showcasing the people behind the wonderful world of wine, where we dive into conversations ranging from terroir, viticulture, to favorite music, superpowers, and more. Please enjoy this episode of the Wine Notes Podcast. Dave, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate you taking the time. You took a lot of time coming here. Thank you. <laughs> no, gladly. It's been kind of weird today. It's been, you know, a little bit of sun, a little bit of rain, and it's just been kind of a, a weird day out there today. You know what? This is the day, whenever we do something collectively in this, you know, we're a part of IPNC this coming weekend, for example. And it always feels like whenever we do something collectively to market the Willamette Valley, it turns out to be some 92 degree bright sunny day. <laughs> and right. we end up, you know, explaining to people that we're really a cool climate. Trust us. Sure. And trust this us. is the, exactly the kind of day that we keep telling them we do have in the summer. So exactly this, uh, this is part of normal. Yes. And I yes. love it. Yes. Uh, I would have taken a half an inch of rain if it had come. That would have been nice <laughs> to start things off. Can I pour us a little bit of a Sir? blind wine? Uh, so as I tell everybody, you have the ability to talk about this if you want, if you don't want to, it's totally up to you. What I try to find is something that will relate to you. Um, and in doing research, you know, what really related to me for you was an Alsace because that seemed to be a tasting that had a lot of memories and everything to you, but I just, mm -hmm. on the spur of the moment, I couldn't find anything appropriate. <laughs> so... I found something that um, is a little bit experimental because you're a very experimental guy and likes to dive into a little bit of different things. So that's, you know, that's what I have. So toward the end, I'll reveal what this is and, uh, you know, for you to kind of think about it, ponder on. And, you know, if you want to say something about it, you can. If you don't want to, that's totally up to you. Well, I do really have a long affinity for... Alsatian wines, um, not so much uh, that it's my be-all, end-all, but it was sort of my first love, really. And I came up in wine, in my knowledge of wine, at a time when white wines in particular were all, all of the white wines that were put on a pedestal were super buttery, super oaky, big Chardonnays. Right. That, you know, this is the 80s, and the contest was, how giant can I make the wine be? That was the contest everybody was playing. Right. In reds, it was how dark and tannic and literally opaque can I make it? Exactly. That was, that was, those were the wines that always won the tasting. And I went to a tasting of Alsatian whites, and what really blew me away was not just how much I was liking them, but how completely counter to what everybody was saying equaled great wine in this country at that time. Right, right. And uh, uh, so that was, Alsatian wines were my revelation. Right. And I like um, aging them uh, for a while anyway. I'm not a 20-year-old Alsatian white drinker necessarily, but um, I like how they reveal a little more complete texture and a little more, complexity the aromas really come together and uh and they just keep revealing complexity they keep revealing a delicacy they keep revealing a more intricate texture they're never trying to be 
the biggest wine on the table. Right. That's not their point. Exactly. And that to me was a real lesson. And that's the lesson that stuck with me. Uh, would I currently say I'll say Alsace is my favorite wine region? No, I mean, I'd probably rather have a Northern Italian red or, a, or something from the Willamette Valley or some other area, you know, right. Right. I've also discovered plenty of other regions that excel in, in bright, lively whites. Um, but it was that first touchstone, that first real eye opener, that, right. that brightness, liveliness, um, complexity are all just as powerful as that big dollop of butter and oak. Oh yeah. Is that going to be? Yeah. Yeah. It is, I, you know, I wish I would have, could have got my hands on one in time enough, but I just, I just didn't have, have the time. What I didn't guess from the aroma of this, but now I'm guessing was that this is a champagne or a sparkling wine that's been open for a couple of days, uh, just long enough to have lost its, the, the intensity of its effervescence, but it certainly comes across like that now. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is a sparkling. Uh, and, uh, you know, I did open it a few hours ago, uh, and I, you know, putting it into the blind so brought it here to another, you, right. right. You so it, another bottle and brought it here. Yeah. So, so it's, that explains that. Yeah. Yeah. But it's very lovely. And again, it's, it's the complexity and the brightness without getting in the weeds of, can I guess this? Cause let's face it, there are way too many good sparkling wines in the world for me to guess what this is, but it's the brightness and the complexity that drives the show. It's right. not the power, you know, it's not the, the, the massiveness of anything. Right. And that makes this my kind of wine. I write that right then and there. Um, our Pinot Blanc by comparison, I didn't know if we were going to really break into tasting right away, but it dovetails with the conversation. Now this is, very much younger, uh, I suspect, than that sparkling wine. And it's not sparkling, but right. you still get a wine where it's supposed to be the liveliness of the aromatics, the liveliness of the flavors, the complexity of all of those and the textures that really drives the show. This isn't trying to win a contest of biggest white wine in any by any stretch. Right. And I think it would fall flat on its face if I tried to win that contest. You know, you wouldn't get, you, you wouldn't get the elusive quality of how juicy that is or what, what is that? Is that a, a floral quality I'm, I'm latching onto? Is it a tropical quality? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I love it when wines make me play that game, like mm. that, that whole, I'm, I can't even put my finger on it. That's to me, what's really exciting. And what's really exciting about this Pinot Blanc is you, um, you know, you get that nice acidity, but then that sharp razor, razor edge uh, finish on the mid palate just really shines through and it makes you think like, holy cow, what's going on here? I think one of the things that I've evolved towards over the years, you know, there was a time when I knew that I wanted to pick earlier and earlier when I was in Monterey County and I'd been tasting with some people up here in Oregon and felt like the brightness they had in these wines was something that I was really admiring. So when I had the time, to, the chance to come up and uh, take over at Adelsheim, that was in 2001, that was something I wasn't going to pass up. Right. But what was, I think most people would have said at the time, 
that the thing you want out of a cool climate is the acidity. And then we started talking about picking for acidity. And I think that worked for a while for me, but what I'm really realizing now is I am picking for flavor. I'm just picking for a certain moment in the flavor where it reminds me of crisp, lively, fresh fruit, not a day later than that crisp point, you know, not, right. and certainly not applesauce or anything. And if I can find a way to grow and to pick based on that flavor profile, based on that, then the acidity will be there. The acidity is part of that. Of course. But if I think I'm picking for acidity, I might miss that, the right flavor. Right. So it, it, acidity turned out to just be, to, to be an incomplete stand-in for what we're really looking for here. Yeah. You know, and I want the full range of aromas and flavors that, that only actually ripe fruit can give me, but I still want to salivate. You know, I still exactly. want that lively quality. Yes, yes. Uh, earlier you mentioned, uh, you know, IPNC is coming up in just a few days, mm -hmm. you know, and you, um, you know, started with Adelsheim in 2001. I assume this isn't your, your first IPNC, your, your first no, not at rodeo all. at all. No, I've, I've been doing IPNC and Oregon Pinot Camp for Years. ages. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's last year was the first Pinot Camp I've ever done with this label. Right. And this year will be the first IPNC I, I will have done with this label. That's congratulations on that. I mean, Thanks. that's, uh, you know, the, the selection process to bring your wines into IPNC is, you know, uh, well, you know, obviously it's just not like, Hey, can I have my wines at IPNC? You know, you right. gotta, gotta be chosen for quality. And I, I think that, I mean, obviously I'm very proud of that. Obviously right. I'm proud to, one thing that I, the one thing that I, I already knew when I came up here to Oregon right. was how collegial it was, but then you work with David Adelsheim for a few decades and you see it even more strongly, how much people are pulling for each other and learning from each other and cooperating with each other and to, you know, it's, it's always an honor to be chosen to show your wine anywhere, but to show your wine alongside the other Oregon wineries, right? A lot of which I very, you know, I, and I, I very strongly admire them and enjoy their wines. And that to me really means a lot to me. Yeah. The, the community itself is so important and it's, it's a big reason why this Valley has come as far as it has. And what, as far as winery, wine, wine, industry is concerned is a fairly short period of time. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And hopefully the, the weather, I mean, right now it looks like maybe lower eighties. Yeah. It's, it finally uh, looks like we'll, we'll get it right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that. Yep. Oh. Uh, two years ago when we had the heat dome oh. that broke every local record by like 10 degrees. Right. Um, if it weren't for COVID, that would have been, we would have been outside at Oregon Pinot Camp doing soil pit seminars oh. that day. <laughs> that would have been imagined. That would have been rough. We, we do have this knack for choosing dates to turn into <laughs> that, but yes. you know, uh, it's all good. It, Oregon is beautiful when it's that, when it's 90 degrees also. 
Right. But it is a lot easier to pour your wine when it's 80. Much easier. Much easier. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, So you met David Adelsheim at the Steamboat Pinot Noir Conference. Um, We met once or twice over the years, and I don't even remember when it would have been the first time. Okay. But we also had some mutual friends. Right. So. There, there seems to be a little bit of a lore behind that Pinot Noir uh, conference. You know, my understanding was just a small select of winemakers, everybody kind of critiquing their wines, no media, and just like everybody right. just getting down to the brass tacks of, you know, let's talk wine and analyze it. And, you know, everybody helping out one another from California and from Oregon. And often Europe. And uh, New Zealand. And that's right. Australia, that's right. Yeah. Uh, Canada. That's right. Um, and there's a reason they always held it just before uh, IPNC, so that you would have uh, the same. Right. That the same crowd. Right. Um, it it was astounding. I mean, there there wasn't anything like it. And the only other things I've ever heard of like it since are things that have grown up around the idea that they were trying to copy that. Right. Um, and the thing is, for Oregonians, that was kind of, it was in their DNA. And, uh, you know, so that, that was what was really impressive to me, is people really willing to say, you know, I tried this and holy shit, it didn't work, you know? <laughs> right. Uh, and I had to fix it, and here's what I did to fix it. And, you know, the kind of things you wouldn't necessarily say in front of the media, no it, offense. Right, no, no, right? That's not I mean, offense taken. There's only some... Occasionally, it's fun to air our dirty laundry, but other times, you just want to <laughs> leave it behind the scenes. Exactly. And, uh, you know, so we had uh, not only a lot of fun, but a tremendous amount of learning. And like I said, it's, it's venues like that. It's groups like that. It's, it's times like that that have propelled things here as far as they've come. Right. And even when I came, you know, even uh, 2001... Oregon was still a little bit more hit and miss. Mm-hmm. You would have described, I think, there being as good vintages and bad vintages or something like that. Right. You know, you go to a tasting and you, you like, you really like enough of the wines to know that this place is really on to something. But then there are other wines that maybe you didn't love. And nowadays, you come to a, a tasting of Oregon wines and it's more like, there aren't good vintages and bad vintages anymore, really. Uh, if you know what you're doing, you might have dark-fruited, rich vintages right. and brighter or more earth-driven, elegant vintages. Right. I say that because I'm, in my mind, I'm directly talking about the 18 and 19 vintages, for example. Right. Those and are... yet both of those vintages are highly respected. There they isn't are. a dog in between them. They're done. more and more, I just see... These, you know, we know how to make excellent wine in a lot of, in a wide range of conditions. And I I think we're just flat out better winemakers uh, collectively uh, than 30 years ago. And it's Steamboat and other times like that that have really helped drive that, raising that bar. And people ask me now, I, I do often get asked, what other places should we go visit, you know, when we're in town? And what are your favorite wineries? And I find myself stumped, and I don't find myself stumped because there aren't good answers. I find myself stumped because I realize that I, there are too many. There, there's so many. Yeah. Right. There, there are some really great 
great producers here, and the number just keeps growing. And right now, if you don't know what you're doing, if you're trying to make wine in this valley and you're not doing a killer job, you must be almost deliberately avoiding telling, you know, asking questions because there are right. people around who are going to help you. I just realized I did not point you. To, oh, did yeah, I? yeah, you did. You did. You did. Sorry. Yeah. No, that's okay. For a minute there, I had blown you off. On no, no, no. It, it, it's good. That's why I had another sip. And, and I mean, I couldn't be prouder of that. I mean, you know, I, and I'm a latecomer to that, right? I've only been here 22 years, but there are people who have been here, been here twice as long. Twice as long, yeah. And, uh, and I consider it part of, part of the honor of being here is to carry that forward, right? Right. If you're a 30-year-old up-and-coming winemaker in Oregon, you should be aware of how this place got here. Exactly. You, you should be aware of what your role should be going forward, right? Um, all those people you're learning from, you're going to turn around and teach the generation after. Right, right. And, uh, and you should be proud to do so. Yeah, yeah. And after 17 vintages at, at Adelsheim, um, you know, Gina Heinen took over, you know, Hinnon, yeah. my, mm -hmm. my apologies. And one of the comments that she said, you know, uh, at your departure was, I usually make the first pot of tea in the morning for us to share, but now I'm surrounded by coffee purist. And I'm sure I'll end up drinking the whole dang pot myself. I foresee a lot of shaky mornings. Um, it's true. She and I were, were tea drinkers and we, and we drank a lot of tea together, but we also did a tremendous amount of tasting. And what I like about collaborative work is I think, first of all, you learn the limitations of your own taste buds. You learn the limitations of your own sense of what to do. Right. Not all of us are not, we don't bring the complete package to the table, right? We all have tasting blind spots or just, or maybe other types of blind spots. And when you get a chance to work with someone for that long, you really get a chance to see that, okay, together we will solve this puzzle faster right. than we're going to solve it on our own. And, you know, Gina and I, before I left, had worked together for, I don't know, 10 years or more. I, I don't remember for Right, yeah, for it's sure. a, a nice uh, long time. A very long time. And overlapping with that, uh, while she was in her first five or so years there, uh, Eric Kramer was there for a long time, and he'd been there for a long time. And so when you really get to know someone very well and taste with them, you do get the shorthand, and you, and you find it that we can figure out what we want to do with these wines uh, faster right? because of that. And no, I, I think that's, I think that kind of collaboration is always a good thing. Now that I'm a very small producer, you know, I still look for ways to do that. And, uh, you know, I, whether it's involving other people or just finding other ways to be that collaborative, right? you know, with friends, uh, we now, now that we built this, we actually have people working here with us. So right now that becomes easier, but it's always been a part of what, the way I like to work. Yeah, no, I, and I agree with that. And some of the, uh, other people that you worked with, you know, talking about, you know, being a, a mentor and helping out, you know, other, uh, winemakers in the, in the Valley, you know, you had, uh, Tracy Kendall, that's now at, uh, Nicholas J. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she was uh, with you for four years on an on, as the uh, onologist, and uh, she got your your blessing in 2014 to go to to Nicholas J. And um, you know, she said that she inst- that you instilled a uh, standard of meticulousness and excellence, and you know, in her winemaking skills. And then also Matthew Perry, you know, he's a winemaker at Double Zero Wines and everything mm-hmm. now. And, you know, he's he is known for, you know, being the the Chardonnay kind of like um I wouldn't say necessarily guru, but like he he was he was all about Chardonnay mm-hmm. from from my understanding. Yeah, very much so. No, he brought a lot to the table with with, with his energy towards Chardonnay. Yeah uh, when he was at Adelsheim. And I always, and I like working with people that bring something to the table that I don't. I think that's important. That's not to say I didn't care about Chardonnay or wasn't, you know. Oh, right, right. But he brought a special level of energy towards it that helped make sure that that particular variety uh, was going to keep on getting propelled forward as much as it should be. Yeah. You know, that we didn't spend all of our time just trying to make Pinot even better. Right. um, And you left out Aaron Kendall, who just took over as oh. winemaker at... Um, Capri? Yeah, yes, yes. Capri. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, he and Tracy actually met when they were both working at Adelsheim. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Very nice. So it's been... No, it's been really rewarding. I honestly... I appreciate that people may have... May, think of me as a mentor but i honestly think of myself as a link in that chain right i'm right and and you need you need the whole chain you know i'm, I'm proud to be one of the links that have brought things to where they are today if that makes sense it does it does and uh you know the main thing i'm trying to teach people if anything is to keep on collaborating keep on keep on moving the whole propelling the whole thing forward it's not just your score or whatever your you know however you want to distill it down to something measurable right it's not just your score it's it's how's the whole valley doing and these wines there are things you can taste in the wines of this valley that we didn't know were going to exist even as recently as like 20 years ago you know the and and to your point, bringing up Matt Perry, uh, you know, Chardonnay is one of the things that we had no idea right. where that was let, where that was going to go. Um, Twenty years ago, we still didn't. I don't think we'd coalesced around what we thought Oregon Chardonnay was surely going to taste like. And boy, that has become amazing. It has, and it's become such a such a thing of its own, and with such energy, you know, with such such dynamic uh just again i'll come back to the way i was describing this the, the bright crisp lively flavor right and the chardonnay's from here and one of the things i find interesting is you know the everybody that is involved in the oregon wine uh community all of us are like yeah chardonnay 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 is you know it's here it's solid it's like yes and it feels like that the wine world and you know, as a whole is starting just now to kind of see that and recognize it. And it's nice to, nice to see that. Well, I think when I first came here and I'm not taking credit for any of this transition, it just, that's my timeline. Right. When I first came here, because there wasn't yet a coalescing around 
any kind of definition of what Oregon Chardonnay was, any Willamette, Willamette Valley Chardonnay was. Um, it, in a way, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If the target itself is nebulous, you're not going to do that good of a job of hitting the target. So how do you, as a winemaker, understand how to commit to what you're doing when the target is so big and broad? Right. And, uh, and so I think what was great about that evolution, I know people give a lot of credit to bringing in Dijon clones, you know, planting different clones, et cetera. But honestly, I think the, the unsung hero of that whole evolution was simply that at some point there was this understanding of what the target could be of, of just the, the kind of lively energy when we embrace the brighter side of Oregon Chardonnay. And uh, when people see the target clearly, they have a much better chance of learning how to hit it. Right. You know, it's it, it sometimes as simple as that. And it, it is. And as you said, when, when things are clear, you have a better idea of what you're wanting to try to go after. And one of the things that you constantly have, have talked about is you're still, after all these years, still trying to make an amazing Pinot. You're not bored and you're still experimenting and doing multiple, multiple things. What, and, and to me, I call that, you know, a, a growth mindset, you know, constantly wanting to achieve and learn more and grow. Where do you think that growth mindset came from? Um, beats me, honestly. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't, I mean, I, I mean, I could give my parents the credit for that, I suppose. Um, right. But, you know, to me, in coming here, I really felt like I'd come to a place that can do something so special. And I don't just mean here in terms of my own vineyard here in the Yolamity Hills, but I think the Willamette Valley in general. Uh, I think a lot of the Willamette Valley is capable of doing amazingly special things with these particular cool climate varieties. Right. And I just keep seeing more possibilities the longer I work with it and more possibility in terms of just how amazing those flavors can be. And so I find that I'm not at all trying to, I, I'm so not bored with trying to make more interesting Pinot. Right. Or better Chardonnay or learning about how fascinating this Pinot Blanc can be. I'm so much so that it kind of boggles my mind when people are, I see people curious about well, what other varieties can we grow? What other, you know, I mean, I get it. It'd be, might be interesting to see Gamay here or whatever, but, right. uh, if I plant something other than the varieties we have here, it will not be because my interest in how to make even more interesting Pinot has started right. to wane. You know, that to me, you, you could add 30 more years to my productive life and I still won't be done learning more about that. And it's just such a complicated uh, world, you know, the whole, the whole universe of all the things we can do to, to coax more flavors out. And I, I don't mean flavors that aren't in the vineyard itself already. I mean, how to unleash all the flavors that we really are getting here. 
Right, right. And, and every time I find something happening at a fermenter that gets even more, you know, a whole new layer of flavor, a different kind of flavor. And I, when I know it's from the vineyard, it isn't because I did something. Right. That is so exciting. And I, and I just feel like, well, wow, let's, let's keep looking at that. Yeah. Let's, let's keep going down that direction, see where it leads. Yeah, that, that would be cool. Um, it definitely doesn't get boring. And I, I'm not, so I'm not going to be the guy pioneering some variety you've never heard of here. I, I think That's, we're, I think we're sitting on uh, ground zero for some of these varieties. I, you know, I mean, to, on, and seriously, at the risk of sounding a little too full of ourselves, um, I think on a level with Burgundy and, and that's an amazing statement to make. I don't take that lightly. Oh, I know. I can totally understand them. With all that said, should we try one of your Pinots? Absolutely. Um, tell you what, you can, I'll start off with the Willamette Valley. Okay. And one thing I like to say about this is, you know, a lot of, a lot of producers in the Valley have a tier that they kind of think of as their introductory tier. That is the one that carries the Willamette Valley Appalachian. Right. And I'm not dumping out that sparkling yet, by the way, cause it's pretty tasty. Um, what I want to stick up for about that, this isn't just our introductory Pinot. It does happen to be the lowest price, but, and it's because we made the most of it, but by blending different vineyards together, you really should see a greater amount of complexity. And, and to me, if all of your sources are excellent sources, and if you've done a good job with all your fermenters, right. your largest blend should be the most complex wine you make. It should have the most seamless texture. And to me, I look for, I always have sort of a, maybe a little more complex definition of that than some people. I'm looking for the aromas and the flavors and the textures to work together so well that you don't really distinguish them from each other. Right. You know, I learned a long time ago at UC Davis that texture and flavor are two completely different sensory phenomena. But what I'm looking for in a wine is a wine that makes me almost doubt that if they can come together that well, mm -hmm. I know my professors were right, but I want the wine to almost, almost suggest they were wrong, you know, right. because it just comes together that perfectly and a blend of more sites, especially when you can include even different sub AVAs of the Valley, right. Might do that even more successfully. You might get to that seamlessness that that thing where texture and flavor aren't so easy to distinguish from each other and the aroma goes along you know with it and everything just makes sense and to me i'm talking about that like i want to get super nerdy about it but the reason i want to get there is because i think it's just friggin delicious you know i think yeah. i think it's a it's a delicious thing to happen whether people are going to articulate that out loud or not right it's, you know, and tasting this wine, you know, with it being a 2019, it's a little bit more of that, that cooler vintage. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can almost kind of see it just in the glass that how bright it is just, you know, sitting there in the glass, just waiting for you, you know, and then just, you know, getting it, you know, on your mid palate, it is, you know, that, um, 
it gives you that kind of velvety feeling and it's, it, uh, it, it always takes me a long time to think of words to, to describe a wine, but this, you know, this to me is, it is gorgeous. It's beautiful. I love it. I, and I enjoy it. And I, you know, I thoroughly appreciate it. Well, thank you. And, you know, to me, I do. So I sometimes just say, well, this really, it just really comes together. Um, one of the reasons why I point that out, and one of the reasons why I'm proud of it when we accomplish that, is that that to me can only really happen when we've had a little bit of a gentle hand with our stuff that we do. You know, it, none of us are hands-off winemakers. That phenomenon doesn't exist. We all do stuff. Right. And the question is, how, do you know how to do just the things that really will help coax that kind of complexity? And the complexity itself has to come from the fruit because what we do, excuse me, in a very small amount, what we do might be able to add a little note of complexity to it, but a little bit more and we're starting to step on it. And so pretty soon, you know, like I was saying about the, the white, uh, that we're the Pinot Blanc we were having, I know how to make these wines bigger. That's actually quite easy. Making wines bigger is the simplest winemaking trick in the book. Right. But you step on flavors as you do. And so sooner or later, that whole array of fascinating things that makes you sit there and pour yourself the second glass because you're still thinking, what was that other thing in there, right? Right. That, that's gone under the layers of things you did to make it bigger. And... So one of the thing, one of the reasons why that is a very clear target for me is that is is finding that harmony between the flavors and aromas and stuff is that I know I'll only hit that if I've managed to have an appropriately sort of gentle hand in Great. what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it is good. Um, you what know, you're hearing now is the sound of my dog drinking water. <laughs> maybe they'll hear it. Maybe they won't. <laughs> um, what I found, in, there's two interesting facts uh, that I found out about you uh, that kind of um, have a relationship to me. So I moved up here from Tennessee to Oregon also in 2001. I know you didn't move up here from Tennessee, <laughs> uh, but it was 2001. And then the other thing is I believe I was a neighbor of yours on the same road in, in Sherwood for about seven or eight years. Oh, okay. And didn't you have like Christmas trees or something in your front yard for the longest time? Um, can't remember what they were called. We had, now off the top of my head, but we okay, did but have, uh, yeah, we had some trees in our yard and and I wouldn't have called any of the Christmas trees per se, but you might've been, you might be thinking of our, of our yard, yeah. Okay, now you have grapevines in your front yard, right? Uh, not where I live now. Okay. I bought okay. a property that I had originally thought I was going to plant, but, and then, uh, Sherwood built that high school right at the base of the roads and after. Right. So, um, it no longer seems like that's the, the air, the area that <laughs> the way that area is going. Right. Right. Yeah. But, um, we certainly have plenty of grapevines right here. Yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. So I, uh, I, I lived on that same road. Okay. Uh, you know, you just wind down a little bit further and, uh, you know, just kind of, there was a blue house on the right hand side that was, had a, you know, mm -hmm. acre and a half of, uh, just forest. So it was, 
It was an interesting uh, place to live. Um, the every time the wind would blow, we'd lose power, and <laughs> you know, just trying to get out of there when when it snowed was always an interesting feat. That was always the thing at Adelsheim too. When I started at Adelsheim, and it got better by the time I left, but yeah, somehow the electricity there was about as fickle as any place I'd ever worked. <laughs> you get, you know, like you said, when the, the wind blows and we had right. a power outage for a little right. while. If we were lucky, it was 45 minutes. And if you weren't, it was three days. Come back tomorrow. Right, right. We'll see what we can do. Yeah, yeah, but definitely. Uh, earlier this year, we lost uh, an Oregon legend, um, Dickie Rath. And from what I can tell, you know, you might have a, a story or two that you might be able to share. Well, I don't know. I mean, I didn't know Dick uh, particularly well, but. I certainly had, was. I certainly loved being a fly on the wall, so to speak, when he and David got together. I remember um, at one point him bringing this clone that he was especially fond of. He brought a sample of it into the lab, and we were tasting it, and you know David was there, and and he and David just got on this random conversation and I think everyone in the lab just shut up and listened because like, <laughs> like hey where's this going right and they were all talking about the old days and and uh talking about Corey uh, you know bringing vines up in 65 right uh along with Dave Lett and um and that whole time and it was just like I said, there are certain times when you just shut up and listen because what's going on is not something you're going to add to yourself. No, no. And and that was really fun. Uh, it was really, it was the kind of thing that really helped give you an appreciation for uh, the the immediacy of the history of this valley. This isn't lost in some you know 20 generations ago where no one right. really quite knows how this came about right this is knowable history and it all happened during my lifetime you know there and uh, it's amazing and it, it just makes you almost feel more responsible for it in a way yeah like i was saying before yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and you know you were talking about you know dick talking about his his clone so i assume that's dick's erat's clone 95 yeah. And uh, so he gave some of that to Don that, you know, that was at V-Don. Mm -hmm. And so um, now Drew and Aaron, you know, have, have that at Capri. And so now Aaron is getting to work with that Clone 95, which is pretty cool. There's, there are so many ways you can connect dots in this valley. There, yeah. You know, it's, a, it's amazing. And, and, you know, like I said, it's just one of the amazing, one of the great things about working here. Yeah. Is how many times we realize that we've influenced each other you know how many times we realize that it it has taken us all to come this far uh, whether it's a specific chain of events like what you were just describing or you know there's so many others yeah and uh you know it always makes me smile to reflect back on that and i'm just proud to be part of that like i said a link in that chain yeah, most definitely. You, cool. you have quite quite the history in the valley, um, and and I don't think there's any danger to take this kind of off in a somewhat different direction. I don't think there's any danger 
that all of this collaboration is leading to some sort of generic sameness in the wines. I continue to see the personality of the vineyards and the personality of the winemaker present in different wines around the valley on a level where I don't, I don't think that's a, a concern. A good friend of mine, who's also a local winemaker, once expressed to me about 20 years ago that he was worried it would make all our wines the same. Right. And, you know, the truth is we all still have different taste buds. Right. Plus we all, you know, I spoke earlier about visualizing what's that target I'm trying to hit. Well, we're all going to, you know, even as we coalesce around a general thinking of what this valley is really good at, we all still picture that target a little bit differently too. And we have a different take on it. Right. So I might be looking for a particular thing that I'm calling complexity and I'm calling finesse and I'm calling a certain kind of integration of aromas and flavors and textures. Um, someone else might say most of the same things, but just picture a slightly different target and be right. working to, or start with different fruit. Right. You, you know, know. And, and different fruit alone makes a pretty giant difference. Right. Which is why um, I don't, as proud as I am of the vineyard that we ended up with here, and I don't want to just work with that fruit because I like the variety. I like the, the complexity and, frankly, just the fun of having some different things to taste and different types of wine that we can make. And I don't think you can, in, it's my opinion, that if you started with just one site and you tried to make several different styles of wine out of it, the truth is, at best, one of them is going to be the best version from that site. Right. And the others are going to be different styles of wine that you forced yourself to make, that you forced to happen because you were trying to make a different kind of wine. And, but if I believe that I'm aiming towards and even remotely successfully hitting some definition of the most interesting Pinot Noir that can come from this site, but I want to make another Pinot Noir that has a different kind of flavor profile, I need to go somewhere else, right? I mean, I, I'm not, this isn't the only vineyard that I want to work with. Right. And so this wine comes from the Shehalem Mountains, and, and I, specifically about two-thirds of it is from the Peterson Nedry's uh, vineyard on Ribbon Ridge. Mm -hmm. And um, it just has a completely different forward berry quality than our own site has. Right. And the tannins are a little more firm and, uh, you know, so it gives me an opportunity to work with a completely different style of fruit, which as a winemaker means I might come up with completely different ideas of how to make the wine. Right. Uh, since the grapes taste different, then my winemaking should probably evolve to to make sense out of that. Right. And um, it's fun to have these different kind, this different kind of fruit come in that gives you that different challenge, that different definition. You know that that whole sense of of now that it's this fruit, what choices should I make? What should right. I be doing? And you know, to me, that's, it's not only fun to have a new puzzle, 
but it's also fun to see it really come together. And yeah, and what's what is interesting, you know, if you wouldn't have told me if I hadn't seen the label that this was a 2019, I would have almost guessed this was a little bit more of an of an 18 because it's a little bit of that darker fruit, and it's uh, and that's the site, right? That that is the site, that's site yeah. driven. You know, right. I can't. What I what I like to really stress is. I can't make that happen just because I wanted to, right? Because if you're trying for, let's say I wanted this to have closer to the flavor profile that the Willamette had, that or vice versa, I'd ruin one of these two wines in, oh, the, yeah. in the effort, right. right? Because that wasn't what that fruit was best suited for, right? So you've you've got to keep paying attention to your fruit. The fruit is really kind of in charge of that target that I was talking about, right? And I'm just supposed to recognize it and and figure out what what steps will take it there. And in the end, I still want that thing to happen where the aromas and flavors and textures come together seamlessly. Um, it's just going to be in a very different way because you have different textures, different yeah. flavors. Yeah, you know, it, yes, I and you know the um, the vineyard, the, the Ribbon Ridge Vineyard. Uh, it is an amazing vineyard. I assume these are coming from their older, like 30-year-old vines. Actually, this comes from not the original Ridgecrest planting, but what they internally refer to as Wind Ridge right across the road. Oh, okay, okay. Um, I, I like working with mature sites because I like knowing that the root structure is large enough to sort of afford you that consistency year in, year out. Right, right. But... I'm not, I'm not worried about the difference between a 15 year old vine and a 30 year old vine. I'm not automatically going to go with the 30, you know, I look at the site and I, and I happen to have worked with this particular site. So, you know, the fact that I know it makes it, makes it a little bit easier. It kind of tips the scales. Right. But you know, when we bought this vineyard, it was around 20 years old and I knew that it had the kind of, like I said, the kind of root structure that would give it a consistency year in year out, and that's the only problem I have with younger vines. I think I, I, I think the site is more important than the vine age. If the vines are so young that they'll handle a dry year in a completely different way that they'll handle a wetter year, or a hot year a completely different way that they'll handle a cool year, right? Then, as a winemaker, it's hard to learn anything from one year to the next. But as long as, as long as they've got deep enough roots to, to ride out some of the different kinds of summers they might get and then that's all i need uh, and i i think the site takes over as soon as that happens right so to me obviously i well maybe it's not obvious i do think about clonal mixes that kind of thing i do think about exact you know rootstock exactly how it was planted how it's being farmed but in the end there's something about the site that eventually sticks up for itself. And I don't think you can dig enough soil pits or take enough weather data to fully explain it. You know, it's the reason why the French still use the word terroir. They're, it's their way of also not explaining it. Right, <laughs> <You know? laughs> right, because there, um, there's so much that goes into it. And, and I think that there was a, I probably, I think I became a better winemaker when I stopped trying to explain why 
Wind Ridge had the flavor and tannin profile it has, and instead just you know realized my job was to respond to that as a winemaker and say, well, what's as a winemaker, what are the things I should be doing? Right. And by that, I'm talking about I'm not talking about big interventionist you know weird tricks. I'm just saying, would this fruit respond to a little bit of whole cluster or not? Uh, would this fruit respond to longer time on the skins or not? Should I be doing mostly pump overs with just a few punch downs or should I be punching this down all the time? You know, those right. are the kind of winemaking choices that we're actually all making all the time. Even if you do it the same way every year, you're, you're making that choice by not trying anything else. Right. And for me, I want to understand all those options. I want to understand what's going to happen when I do something different so that I can be more flexible when I get fruit that maybe tastes a little different than I expected, you know, and I can, I can learn about how to best make the best wine from that vineyard. And the definition of the best wine from this vineyard might be completely different than my own vineyard. Right. And, uh, and I, I should be, I should have that kind of open mind and I should have that kind of understanding of what those different techniques are going to do. The 19s, for example, ended up spending probably on average, maybe three ish more days on the skins than I normally leave my, uh, than I normally leave fruit in the fermenter. Not because I was trying to make the wine bigger or whatever. I was really enjoying the elegance of the tannins and I just kind of instinctively felt like maybe they'd become even more complete and even more, well, to use that word again, elegant, if I let them on the skins a little bit longer. Right. And I tried it with the first couple of fermenters that went dry and it seemed very successful. And so I kept tasting them afterwards. But I also like I said, kept tasting them afterwards. In other words, I didn't just decide this is the new definition. I, you know, because that's the kind of thing you do get to change on the fly. You do get to experience that right. and make a decision. So I kept on looking at it. And, and I feel like the delicate, elegant, sort of tea-like um, side of that vintage really came together and had I just used whatever the instructions were that I would have written a year before, um, I might not, I might have missed that entirely. Well, yeah, and you know, you, you've got to be responding, and you have to come in every day during harvest, in particular, when things oh, are yeah. changing that fast. Right. You have to come in every day ready to believe that whatever you thought yesterday was wrong, so that you're ready to say, "Wow, this is going in a different direction. Let's try." something that I didn't know we were going to try. Right. You got to be paying attention and figuring out what's, what's going on and just be able to, uh, walk the path that the wine has taken you. Mm hmm. Yeah. And you know, and then in comparison, the RPG again, from the same vintage, um, happy to show you something from 18 or 21 as a contrast, but I think it's interesting to try these wines from the same vintage so you can really see how much of this, is site driven and you know or some combination of the site and my response to the site and you know this I, do, I don't find that the ribbon ridge fruit I don't necessarily find that I like it with any whole cluster 
To me, any technique that I use is only successful if the results are hard to pin down, right? As soon as I can taste that technique right. and its influence on the wine, I feel like I screwed up because the wine's not supposed to be about my technique. It's supposed to be the result of my technique, but it's not supposed to be about my technique. And, and, uh, and as big as that fruit is, as bold and fruit driven as that fruit is from, uh, from Wind Ridge, I feel like a little whole cluster sometimes just tastes a little stemmy in there. And that's not what I'm doing it for. I'm doing it to see if I can form a complete, a different, more complete definition of the, of the tannic structure right. and add, you know, and see if something elegant happens to the flavors. So this vineyard, which I would normally characterize as being a little more delicate in style than Wind Ridge, happens to respond very well to a little bit of whole cluster. I don't know that I can explain it, but I tried it and it worked. And, right. and I've tried it since then and, and I still think it works. Nice. And I, and I don't find it green and stemmy. I don't find it, I don't find anything about this that I might've, that might've made me guess that it was the result of 25% whole cluster. I just know because I had the opportunity to try it next to other batches that where I didn't do it, that the tannins just come together in a more complete, elegant way. Mm-hmm. And the flavors are, again, linking up with those tannins and a, linking up with the textures in a way that is seamless. And so I just find this really comes together beautifully. And that's what I was looking for. I wasn't looking for anything obvious about what, about my winemaking. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, I appreciate how you lack a better, better term, listen to what the vineyard is giving you and just let the vineyard show through in, into your wines. You know, it's like, for example, on this one, um, you can tell that there's a little bit of whole cluster, uh, because you have that nice, to me, a nice firm tannin structure that's, in, you know, mm-hmm. firmly in place, showing me that in many, many years that this wine is going to, you know, lay down, you know, gorgeously. And that, that tannin is just going to hold it in place for years and years to come. And it's really an interesting thing about what you just said. It's really the brightness of it that makes a wine like this so ageable. You know, the, the, the previous wine, the Shayla Mountain one, has a sort of gutsier backbone, if that's the way you look at it. You know, it has a, a bigger style of tannin. Probably it's closer to having the style of tannin that I think people stereotypically would say, oh, this, you know, I'll age this. But honestly, it's the brighter side of it that makes it so fun to age that and see just how, just where that can go. Right. And I honestly have seen over and over again, it's some of the more elegant vintage vintages and some of the more elegant wines from those elegant vintages have aged the most gracefully. Yeah. The, the big, boldly flavored vintages and you pick the more tannic wine from that vintage and those quite often don't age gracefully they're you know they're just more obvious but they're not necessarily more fascinating and i i love wines like this and i and i love aging them and i you know i love holding them a little while to see what can happen or sometimes i don't have the patience to age it so we'll i'll open it and have a glass right have another glass three days later and see where it went exactly and just watch it evolve in that sort of way yeah and uh and again 
you know, it's not, it's that whole, have those elements come together, but also have those elements come together over time. I'm sitting here talking and I'm still tasting and feeling the wine and it's just slowly trailing off right. and it still has a little bit of brightness. And just like with the whites, it actually still makes me salivate a little bit. Yep. And to me, that is the complete package. That's my target. That's the target I'm looking for. Right. And there's nothing more exciting about than, than accomplishing that. And, and that's what keeps me here. And that's what keeps me so fascinated on, on this variety in particular. Yeah. No, is, uh, is uh, the opportunity to, to try to do that again next year, knowing the fruit's going to be different, you know, right. you got this iron chef quality to it. You know, I know it's, I know what varieties I'm getting. I know what vineyards are coming from, but I don't know how they taste. Well, yeah. And, and if you just, and if you just look at the, the vintage for this year, I mean, we went from, uh, from like bloom to like getting, you know, actual fruit set in a record amount of time. Yeah. No, and, well, from bud break to, to yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's what I meant. Bud no, break. crazy. Yeah. And it's great. So what, right. What style, what, what is that going to what bring? What style are we headed for? Right. I don't know. And, and, you know, I think that's exciting. I think that the mistake is to try to start guessing, right? Right. That's the mistake. I can tell you the 2022 vintage doesn't taste anything like what some of the people were saying about it two weeks before harvest. And right. a lot of it has to do with the weather during harvest. Right. But, you know, bottom line is taste it and and come up with a fresh set of thoughts don't don't get hung up on what you thought two weeks ago or frankly two days ago right and that's what's fun about it that's what that's what makes it such a kick but that also is what makes it so important to understand all these different techniques all the different ways we can we can make these wines come together so that you have a bigger bag of tricks at your disposal yeah no, when the time comes. Yeah. No, that is amazing. So I have some rapid fire questions and I can get you out of here. Um, favorite art, art, love, favorite artist to listen to during harvest. Well, probably different, you know, like 8 a.m. versus uh, 10 p.m. <laughs> Let's know. go for the 10 p.m. There are, uh, I don't know, 10 p.m. I might be getting closer to like Van Morrison unless I really need some energy and then it's probably more like the old 97s. Okay. But you know, it depends on if I'm trying to wake up or, <laughs> or wind down. Right. Uh, and, uh, I'm pretty eclectic about that sort of thing. And I'm also pretty open-minded and often let other people take over the DJing cause I need them to be happy too. Exactly. Uh, I think I know the answer to this question, but, uh, your favorite indulgent food. Jesus. Um, uh, you know, a really good pizza is pretty hard to drive by no matter what. All right. I don't know if that counts as indulgent. It or does. If you're looking for something. No, I, I, I thought it was going to be a hamburger. Uh, no. 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 Okay. Although they're good too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you could choose the superpower, what would it be? Oh, fuck. I don't know. Uh, geez. <laughs> um, uh, given the industry we're in, knowing the future would be pretty astounding. I don't know if that counts as a superpower. It does. But, yeah, yeah. Um, that that would be that would be amazing. Okay. Uh, your harvest notes, especially if I could have had that in the, on September first, twenty twenty. Oh, boy! Give me you just yep. give me a two week window into the future, right? And 
my life would be different. Oh, it'd be a whole lot different. Yeah. Yes. Uh, your harvest notes, are they digital or handwritten? Uh, some combination of handwritten and not written down at all. <laughs> and often scrawled on the heads of barrels. Right. And, uh, you know, I used to, when I first started out, I kept better notes. But then I would find that I often either didn't go back and read the notes or I'd read them. But if it was a year later, I'd be like, I don't quite remember why I wrote that. Or, you know what I mean? Right, it, right. It turns out that referring back to those notes was never as compelling as you thought it was going to be. That's fair. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, last book you read, it could be also on Audible or if it's a podcast or anything of that nature. Um, this sounds nerdy and weird, but actually it was... Uh, uh, I can't remember the full name of the book, but it, uh, it was on the Mayflower. Oh, okay. The Voyage of the Mayflower. That would be fun. Um, sorry, that's, that's no, no, pretty, no. That's no. pretty random response. No, 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 no. It's, it's good. It's good. I actually read mostly nonfiction stuff uh, nowadays. And I I'm all about nonfiction. Yeah. Uh, shall I reveal the the blind wine? Sure. Okay. So by the way, I, still, I kept it because. I love the way it's opening up in spite of the fact that it's going more and more flat all the time, but it's still quite interesting. It is interesting. And, you know, so Michael Lundine out of uh, McMinnville. Oh, excellent. It's a, you know, it's a method champenois Pinot Gris. And I'm especially impressed because it's Pinot Gris. Um, I had, it's, this is a very good wine and congratulations to them. Uh, right. Let me make that clear. But, I had an amazing opportunity in 2014 when Adelsheim was getting their sparkling wine program together. We were just, just starting it. We hadn't yet produced a commercial one. Right. And I had the opportunity to go with an importer to uh, Champagne and taste their wines before they bottled them to, you know, the, in order to turn them into Champagne. Right. So taste the still wine. And every time I ran across a Pinot Meunier uh, sample, it to me tasted like Pinot Gris. And so, so much so that I, I ended up saying, boy, I don't have to plant Pinot Meunier if I wanted to make, if I wanted to make sparkling wine, I'd have something that tastes like this. Right, And right. it really surprised me how much that was true. And uh, I will confess that I don't really care for sparkling wines with Pinot Meunier most of the time. <laughs> right. Uh, at least the champagne versions I've had. Right. So I didn't, that didn't necessarily make me curious about making one out of uh, Pinot Gris, but uh, this is excellent. This is genuinely excellent. Yeah. No, it's, you know, the, I found that the spirit, you know, that Michael has is very similar to yours, you know, constantly learning and, you know, uh, hardworking and just, you know, produces some, uh, some amazing wines, just like what you've shown me today. You know what the bottom line is about that wine? Um, it's just like I was saying about my wines. The aromas and the flavors and the textures do come together and they linger exceptionally well together. Right. And that's what I'm looking for. The specifics of exactly what aroma or flavor any of these wines at my wines or this wine aren't as important to me as when I see those come together. Right. Because the specifics of exactly what aromas are there, as long as I'm going to have a gentle hand, um, those are up to the vineyard. They're up to the grapes, right? right. The grapes are going to decide, um, 
what exactly that wine tastes like as long as I don't step on it. And I find, and with, and I've, this wine does the same thing that I hope my wines do, which is present you with a complete package of aromas and flavors and textures with the full long linger that suggests that this wine was in no way stepped on. Excuse me. The, uh, you know, there, there's a, a lovely array of flavors that obviously came from the vineyard. Right. And I think that's all we can ask for. And even when we were, so much so that when we were looking for this site, when my partners and I were looking around to see, you know, what vineyard we might be interested in, in acquiring, uh, they would kind of try to pick my brain. Well, what are you looking for? What, what are you looking for in a site? And I think I frustrated them because all I ever wanted was a site that really had a personality. I didn't care if it was going to be as berry driven as Harry and Wynn site on Shehala Mountains. Right. Or as sort of more elegant and earth driven as this site turns out to be. I just wanted it to have enough personality that it would be a gas getting it to show up and, you know, making a, a, a life out of let's make this show up in the wine. Right. Let's let its personality really shine. And, and, uh, you know, I, I still to this day don't have a strong, I don't have a favorite flavor that I need to get out of these wines. If I did, I'd screw them up. You know, I'd, I'd be trying to look for that flavor too hard. Right. So anyway, I applaud this because I think it does the same thing I'm trying to do. And that is to say, it just, it hangs its hat on the flavors that were there and lets them speak for themselves. And that's delicious whenever it happens. Yep. So yeah, kudos. Yeah. Well, kudos to them. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Um, I feel like we just scratched the surface, so you'll just have to come back sometime. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> Thank you so much, and I look forward to seeing you in a couple of days at IPNC. Yep. We'll be there. All right. Thank you. Cool. Cheers. Thank you for joining me on this flavorful voyage through the world of wine on the Wine Notes podcast. I've been your host and guide, AJ Weinzel, and it's been an absolute pleasure sharing these captivating stories with you. But alas, like the last sip of a fine vintage, our time together must end. But don't fret, my wine-loving friend. The cellar doors of the Wine Notes podcast will always remain open, waiting for you to return and explore new conversations, stories, and musings from the captivating people behind the magical world of wine. Before you go, hit that subscribe button on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, and don't forget to leave a sparkling five-star review to help spread the word. Until our glasses clink again, remember to savor life's moments and let the spirit of wine and camaraderie linger on your palate. Cheers, and as always, may your wine glass be full, your heart be light, and your journey 